Hi, this is Jim Lesser from BBDO San Francisco, and welcome to another episode of the Fog City Chronicles. Today's interview is part of a series called The Women Who Run BBDO. Female leadership is such an important topic in our industry right now, and at BBDO, I've been very lucky to work with uh, some of the most dynamic leaders in our industry who happen to be women who are running offices and groups of offices. And I thought that if we could uh, pull their collective knowledge together, it might help to inspire the uh, female leaders of tomorrow. Today's conversation is one I've been looking forward to since we began this series, and it's with Scylla Snowball. Scylla is one of the most insightful and dynamic leaders I've ever met. I've known Scylla a long time through the BBDO network, and she just has a, a, a rare passion and an, and an ability to create a culture that I think people just want to be a part of. You meet anyone from AMV and they just are so happy to work there. Um, and that's in large part due to Scylla. So I think you're really going to um, enjoy this conversation. I know I certainly did. Scylla's official title is Dame Scylla Snowball, and we'll get to that later. But she's the group chairman and group CEO of AMV BBDO. And that, for anyone who doesn't know, is BBDO uh, all across the UK. Uh, Scylla joined AMV BBDO in 1992 as the agency's first new business director. And 26 years later, she now oversees the entire AMV group across the UK. She was made Managing Director in 2000, and then CEO in 2001, and Group CEO in 2006. Scylla sits on the board of BBDO Worldwide and is a member of the Facebook EMEA Client Council. She chairs the Women's Business Council, and she was the first woman to chair the Advertising Association. Uh, Scylla was made a dame in the Queen's Birthday Honors in June of 2017, just about a year ago. Uh, for her services to advertising, diversity, and equality. And she was awarded an honorary doctorate by the University of Birmingham in July of last year. Uh, but most importantly of all, um, she is Fred, Albert, and Rosie's mum. You got it all right. <laughs> and I've, I've known Scylla now for 19 years and, um, and without a doubt has, have always looked up to her as one of the, the great leaders in our, not just our network, but in our industry. And so it's a pleasure to have you here to chat, Scylla. Oh, well, thanks for asking me. So let's start with, um, as I said, I think the, these discussions are best when they're kind of free flowing, but will range from philosophical points of view on where we are as an industry to little tips and tricks that people here can put to use. And also, obviously, um, not just people here, but we record it for a podcast that um, hopefully can be shared around the BBDO network so that anyone who can't be in the room can can um, also benefit from the wisdom. Okay. So how did you get into advertising originally? What, what made you want to be in this business? Um, I did a French degree uh, and decided I wanted to get into marketing or advertising uh, when I finished that degree and thought advertising would have more variety and applied for jobs, including an application to the then four-year-old Abbott Mead Vickers. Uh, and they turned me down. 
and uh, I couldn't even get an interview here. So I appealed and they turned me down again. And so I went off to work somewhere else. Uh, and in the course of working somewhere else, I worked with Andrew Robertson as a young young man and uh, Michael Bulk as a young man at Ogilvy. And the rest sort of took shape from there. I think, you know, it's a good lesson in, uh, you may not succeed at first, but if you could keep trying, you'll, you'll get what you want and what you dream of. And it took me 11 years to get hired here. Uh, but now I've been here 26 years. So uh, that early rejection just made me want to come here more. And uh, I meet lots of people who've been turned down by, uh, by me over the years. Uh, it's very embarrassing when I can barely remember interviewing them, but they go, oh, you turned me down. And uh, I think it's quite a good lesson. Rejection just spurs you on. So I've been very lucky. They took me eventually. I wore them down. Um, it's, that's, I've already learned something about you. I didn't know that. Um, and I think for a lot of people that any kind of rejection can mean uh, a sense of, you know, a fear, a failure, a feeling that you're not good enough to be playing on a certain level. So what was it about your mindset that allowed you to flip that and turn it into motivation and not, and not uh, a sense of of, uh, you know, rejection? Well, I mean, I was in my early 20s and it wasn't a big deal. I got rejected and I got a job somewhere else and life carried on. Um, I was reading some comments from J.K. Rowling the other day saying that the Harry Potter manuscript was turned down 11 times before she got someone to buy Harry Potter. And, you know, she was divorce and single and living in a council flat then and she really needed someone to buy that manuscript but uh, I wasn't divorced or single or living in a council flat and I just got another job and got on with it um, and there was no sense of dwelling on it you just get on don't you I mean we get rejection all the time in ad agencies you have to move on quickly yeah um, while we're on the subject of early years of AMV I wonder if you could describe the, you know, now, especially for us here in the States, we think of AMV as a storied and brilliant agency that is BBDO in London because it's been so many years and as people come into the business, that's the way we think of it. But I wonder if you could put a little bit of context around what AMV was before it was part of BBDO and how, you know, the, the, the sort of um, significance of AMV in our industry at that time. Well, I'll try and do the history lesson in a way that's useful to you and the lessons coming out of it, and I'll do it briefly. Um, three friends decided to start an ad agency together, and they won some good clients, and they decided to hire nice, bright people, and they stayed friends in a way that most people who start agencies don't stay friends. And they did good work and they insisted on quality in everything and treating people properly. And 40 years later, we all believe in the same thing. Um, being acquired by BBDO meant two of them left, but they probably would have left anyway. Um, David Abbott left on his 60th birthday. Uh, 
He died soon after his 75th birthday, but he felt that he owed it to his family to stop and have a life, and he did. And Adrian Vickers retired soon afterwards. Peter Mead still comes into the office every day um, and is a very paternalistic figure around the agency. But nothing's really changed in those principles. Uh, it's just really hard uh, and more complicated in, in delivering those principles with the pressures of the modern world of communications, as you all know too. But I think the most important story is that Abbott Mead Vickers, when I joined, was ranked 11th in the UK and Saatchi was the biggest agency by miles. And we've now been the biggest agency in the UK for 21 years. And that is so hard to keep up there at no one, number one. No one wants us to be at number one, least of all our competitors. But we've set out to be the best, not the biggest. And we've got to be the biggest by being the best. But now we're up there. I don't want to be on duty when we come off that number one <laughs> pedestal. So uh, that's the story of AMV. And, uh, I think it's so rare because friends fall out and they stayed friends. And uh, the closest parallel in the UK is Adam and Eve. You know, they are friends that have stuck together and they haven't fallen out and they bought a, built a very successful business that was then bought by DDB. So they're nipping at our heels. They're the second biggest agency in the UK and they would dearly love to be number one. but. They're closest to what AMV and what Abbott Mead and Vickers did. What, what as, as someone um, looks to start their career in advertising, and we have a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of young folks here today listening, what do you think are the critical traits that someone needs to be successful in the business over time? Well, I think it's changing a bit. I think you need to abide by all our people values, which I'm sure are up on a wall or a partition or a screen somewhere. People that make the work better and that clients love, I think are the two most important criteria. Um, I think an ability to have flair and energy and brevity are important and to move at speed and to have courage, drive and influence. And I think those are the qualities we're looking for now. But, you know, you'll be looking for the exact same things that I'm looking at. And the BBDO people values are really useful as a recruitment tool, as an appraisal tool, as a succession tool. And as a tool to just look at yourself and go, am I really someone that clients love? Do I make the work better? Am I a closer? Am I a radiator, not a drain? And so on. And I hope you've all seen those values because they're really effective and true to us as BBDO. You know, we're a network where we like one another. There aren't many networks where countries and offices like one another. You know, we've got something very, very special in our network that we need to cherish and protect. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, to your point, the, the values that are up on the wall, um, the story that I heard around those values, I was not in the room, was that the worldwide board gathered to develop those and there was a, a time allotted 
to come up with uh, you know a series of values, but it actually was a process that happened more quickly than anyone expected because of the general agreement. Yeah, well, you know, you know what Andrew's like. He he works very fast, and because we like one another, we're aligned on everything. So we we develop that list of values in less than ten minutes, I think. Which isn't to underestimate their quality. It's to uh, it's a statement of our consistent approach to things as people and practitioners and professionals and never, never doubt the quality of what we have in BBDO because I, I haven't seen it anywhere else. And, you know, you'll be reading all the stories about WPP at the moment and, you know, other networks don't like each other as much as BBDO likes each other. Yeah. It's a, that's an amazing story, actually, and also one a lot of times, you know, we get a client brief or we have an assignment to do and we think the timeline has been squeezed and um, here's an assignment that was given to the most senior people in the agency and it was done in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I've worked with Andrew Robertson for God knows how many years because we worked at Ogilvy, then he went off to other places and then I came to AMV and then he came to AMV, but... You know, we've worked together a long time and he's my boss. I've never had a meeting longer than an hour with him. You know, and we ran the biggest agency in the UK for many years together. And, you know, he can work well at speed and I think we've all got to learn to do that. We can't all be Andrew Robertson, but we can try to be brief. While we're on the topic of, of AMV and the group, um, could you explain just the difference between AMV and AMV group for, for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the group keeps changing because proximity, I don't know if you've got the same thing in San Fran, it, it was in our group and now it's in a central uh, data division of DAS. So the group is AMV, which consists of lots of little units from consulting to digital to experiential to data to low-cost production. And they're all under the AMV banner. And then we've got a content and publishing division called Redwood. But over time, we've just trying to, been trying to simplify it, not sort of Ogilvy One style, but we've just been trying to simplify it into different services under one roof that we can call the AMV group. Great. Uh, Scylla, when, uh, just a look back at your career, and I think one of the things we all um, learn from over time is, is choices we made. And when you look back, hindsight's 2020. But I'm wondering if, if you could share any key decisions that you made in your career that when you look back on them, they were pivotal decisions. And they might have been smart choices, or they might have been not so smart choices at the time, but that ended up in a better place um, that, that you could share for people to learn from. Well, there's an example that you will all really love because you work on Barbie. And I was giving a presentation this morning playing your dad's You Play With Barbie film, which is brilliant. And we love the work you do. But there was just a pivotal moment in my career that changed everything. And about three years in at Ogilvy, I was an account director. And the pitch came in to pitch for Barbie. But then it was just ADAP work. It was, you know, Ogilvy LA will develop all the work for Barbie around the world. Ogilvy London just puts 
titles and supers on the end and shifts the dolls around. And no one was interested in working in the, on the Barbie pitch. And I don't know why, and I can't remember why, but I put my hand up and I said, I'll do it. And it was me and the then MD, Michael Bulk. And I suppose the lesson is always put your hand up for something, even if you don't fancy doing it, because amazing things happen as a result. That single action has defined the whole rest of my career. I worked with Michael Bulk on this pitch. We worked out we like one another. He worked out she'll do all the work and I'll take all the credit. And then... <laughs> He moved to AMV, he quickly brought me over as new business director, he brought Andrew in, I followed Andrew, Andrew got promoted into the stratosphere and I got the job here. But it was that single act, if I hadn't put my hand up to work on the Barbie pitch, which we won at the time actually, um, none of this would have happened. Um, so. That, that's the only example I can give you, but it's a pertinent one to you. And now, Bobby, is something everybody would put their hands up to work on. You've done such a good job. But back in 1980-something, no one wanted to do it. That's a great story. Um, and thank you for the nice he words about the Barbie work. He would kill me for saying I do all the work and he takes all the credit. But it's true. It's true. So... I think he would probably say that's... Now. Yeah, he would probably say that's absolutely true. Um, so the theme of these discussions that we've been having is the women who run BBDO, as you know, and at a time when this subject of female leadership in our industry is, is such an important topic, I'm wondering if you would just take a moment to reflect on, on what you think are the factors that have helped you um, be successful with this you know, unprecedented sort of success in our industry long before this was a subject of conversation. Subject same, conversation. same answer, really. It's just work with the right people and work in the right company and everything else follows from that. You know, this, the choice of partner and the choice of where you work is probably the two most important life decisions you're going to make. And I chose to work with people that respected me and made me feel like I could be myself. And all of you have that choice of who you want to work with and where you want to work. And you've all made a really good choice. I think, you know, you can't succeed in a company where you're not valued and you don't value the people above and around you. So it's the same answer. It's just choose the place you work very carefully and then whether you're a man or a woman, you will progress in a company where you're working with good people who you trust, who treat you well, who do great work, who share your values. And it's no more complicated than that. But, you know, if you're not happy in learning somewhere, you should leave and go somewhere where you are. And I've always been happy in learning here. Uh, and like you, we did a big office move. I think around the same time, we had our own front door in a different part of town and we moved here. I don't know how much you can see behind me, but it's probably like your office. Um, Very similar. And everyone moaned and everyone said, oh my God, it's the end of the world and we've got no privacy and there's too much noise. And three years on, we've stopped moaning about the office. We found new things to moan about. <laughs> We've had a very similar experience. I think the, the perhaps it looks and, great. And, 
Well, thank you. It's, it's very similar. Having been in your office many times, it's very, very similar. Um, and I know we you know, commiserated over the move together when it, when it all happened. But I think the one big difference probably in San Francisco is that every other company in San Francisco, not just advertising agencies, but Google, LinkedIn, you name it, they're all set up largely the same way. So uh, yeah. there was less we of a We were pioneers, I think, doing it first. And actually, it's quite interesting when we're pitching, we've just won a piece of business. We've won the third largest supermarket brand called Asda. It's part of Walmart here. And they were pitched to very aggressively by Publicis on the one Publicis model. And they had to kind of set up a warehouse and capabilities and call it something trendy. We just said we're in a building with our partners and we can do it here in our own offices with the right talent. And I think our building now is a huge asset on those kinds of pitches. So I think Omnicom actually, whilst at the time we had a million one reasons to moan about the office because we lost our independence and our control, they made the right decision to do it when they did it. And it is working really well for us now. Yeah, that's, we were having a similar experience, I think. Um, well, what, one more question or, or discussion point just on the, the subject of, of female leadership in the advertising industry. So you've had, had also, uh, along with a successful career, um, a role as a leader in our industry. So you were the first female chairman of the Advertising Association. Uh, you started the Omni Women program for Omnicom. I'm just, I'm just wondering, um, does did, from your point of view, did, did BBDO do anything different to help foster this incredible team of, of leaders around the world? Or, um, I don't know, what, were there any significant factors in, in the difference? I think so. I mean, a really quick answer. I think Omni Women was set up by Janet Riccio in the States. And I came over at Janet's invitation to a meeting she held in New York to talk about all the stuff I'm doing with the UK government on the Women's Business Council. And I just thought, well, we should set up Omni Women UK. And it was as simple as that. You know, there was no great, it was again, a decision made very quickly because we all liked each other. So we set up our own format. We, it really built integration because we didn't know the other women in the other Omnicom companies and we weren't all in the same building at that stage. And so the conditions were set with, you know, if you hire great people and you take care of your people, everything else looks out for itself. And if you belong to a network and a holding company when everyone does that, it's really easy because you've got good people. So the women thing has never really been an issue for me in work, but there aren't enough senior women in advertising or in creative or in management. And so in my spare time, I've always felt very passionate about doing something about that. So that's what I do at a kind of business and government level. And I'd encourage all of you, my other tip for today is, you know, be curious about things in and around the industry where you can drive change. You know, diversity in advertising, you know, d equality, you know, you've done more for dads with that single Barbie ad than anyone's done on dads in any ad anywhere. You know, it's fantastic. So 
I think looking at work you can do to change things always pays back into the agency. But again, BBDO have been very good about saying, yeah, go and do your government thing. And, and it's made me a better leader and uh, it stopped me going crazy. And it's interesting and important work. That's great. Um, well, on the, on the subject transitioning to uh, kind of things you've learned along the way, tips and tricks for people um, who are maybe just starting out their career or in the middle of their careers, um, what's, what's, what do you look for when hiring? And I'm, I'm always curious, do you have any hiring tricks? In other words, like a favorite interview question or a technique for interviewing, what do you look for in that initial, um, you know, that initial meeting when you're when you're hiring potential team members for AMV, I think probably all the things you're looking for a curiosity, an ability to be interested in people, uh, somebody that's got the courage of their convictions, somebody that's interesting in work. My my favourite question is, who's your favourite client? And it is a trick question because. Obviously, the answer is you can't have a favorite client. But some people have to really think about a client that they like. And I think that's a bit of a bad sign in a culture where we want clients to love us and we have to love them back. So it's a trick question, but favorite client and what piece of work are you most proud of? Uh, all revealing questions. If people have to think about the answers to those questions, you know, they shouldn't work in BBDO. But I have my pupil values checklist. Uh, I try and listen more than I talk. Uh, I've made some appalling hiring mistakes in my career. We all have. Um, and I've made some, in the main, some very good hiring decisions that I'm very proud of. Um, in, in terms of getting at the, the 10 values, have you found any, um, I don't know, any, any specific routes or things that you listen for that help you? In other words, like for the we not me value, a lot of times if I'm speaking with someone, I'll just listen for how often they use I versus we. But I'm, I'm yeah. you know, when they're talking about maybe a campaign they created or, or a project they did or something. But I'm wondering if you have any other tips because I think that's one of the things that as you're you know, moving up through the organization, early on an interview is just, you're just trying to sort of see if you can be friends with this person. But it's great to have any little, um, you know, tricks for kind of how to suss out, is this going to be someone who's going to really be successful here? Yeah, and I think that's where the values are interesting because you don't want someone that's me, 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 me. Or I, I also quite like people who are quite quiet and humble. I think there's in a very noisy, brash, confident world, I quite like the curious, quiet, thoughtful people. Um, and so I don't confuse sort of volume with quality and will we'll listen very carefully. But the interview process is here, not a one-off, 
you know, we will interview somebody. James, how many times were you interviewed before you got into AMV? <laughs> he said he said he thinks he was interviewed five times, but he was also rejected completely the first time through and came back again. <laughs> like me, yeah, yeah. But there you go. I mean, there's safety in numbers and volume, but your your test of is this somebody I want to be friends with and spend time with. I found that when I had kids. Um, all the interviews I've been doing at work, and I ran graduate recruitment for many years here around at Ogilvy, that interview practice was great when it came to interviewing people who were going to look after my children. Uh, and, you know, if you can interview well, then you can interview a builder who's coming to your house to do your, your work up, or you interview someone who's going to share your apartment or, you know, interview practice, if you haven't got it, is something that you should all try and try and get practicing because the more you do, the better you get at it and uh, learn from your mistakes as well. That's great. Yeah. So interviewing as a life skill, not just a, uh, a business skill. I think so. I think so. I think I, I was very lucky with my kids. We always, they're in their late 20s now. In fact, my eldest is getting married next weekend, which is a very aging and important moment. Congratulations. But, um, back when they were little, the choice of childcare and the, the nanny that would live out but look after my kids while I work full time was the very, very important decision. And I was lucky that I'd had lots of practice and could work out who was good and who wasn't. Yeah, yeah. So it's a life skill. Do you take college students and graduates? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so and, everyone um, can get involved in that and get practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually something that's, it's, it's interesting, a lot of the, the work that I've done with some of the, the school programs at, at uh, Colorado and BYU and uh, USC, it's interesting what things the schools think are valuable versus what things are actually valuable um, in practice. Yeah. And interviewing probably goes on that list of things they, they don't think about very much, but that is actually incredibly yeah. valuable. Yeah, it's a skill. It's a skill. And also not, not being too judgmental, you know, not making up your mind in the, it's not speed dating, you know, it, it's not Tinder. You know, you, you've got to decide on somebody <laughs> and give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, it's just as much about you as it's about them. And it's like when you're doing a chemistry meeting with a client, you think it's all about your chemistry with them. Actually, they're looking at your chemistry with your team and your chemistry in the agency. You know, it, people come out of interviews and they're, they're buying as much as you're selling and you've got to make a good impression on them. So you've got to practice because you've got to be good at interviewing, I think. They've got um, to that's go great out and saying, I love her, I want to work for her, and I want to work for them. They're brilliant. You're selling as much as buying. Right. Um, while we're on the topic of, you mentioned new business, AMV is on quite a, a new business tear at the moment after, um, after maybe a bit of a dry spell. And I'm wondering yeah. what changed. I'm wondering if you have any insight on what, uh, you know, were there any key unlocks that... Um, that you know has helped you create this momentum that you have right now with new business. Yeah, how we, how are you guys doing? First, before I answer the question, how are we doing on new business? Yeah, really, yeah. Good, really well. And in fact, right now we are um, 
for the first time in quite a while in the, in the rare position to have to turn some things away because we have too many yeah. pitches on at the same time. Yeah, we've done that. We've put people in different positions. Um, we've stared hard at our conversions statistics. A year ago, we were operating at 33% conversion. And you can imagine how great we felt about ourselves about that and how great Andrew felt about that. So we moved positions. Uh, we empowered people. We did a big review of what we were doing right and wrong. And we set out to make it a priority. So we turned tons away. And by the end of the year, we'd gone from 33% conversion in the first half to 100% in the second half. And we kept that 100% record until we did a repitch this year for our lottery business. And they went to Adam and Eve. And so we're now at 79% conversion because of that loss. But we're winning more than we're losing. Um, we were prepared to confront our mistakes. We uh, set about making it a priority. I mean, it, it's... We've, we did four big pitches on the run and we won three of them. But doing four big pitches at the same time was a mistake. We were all knackered and grumpy and spent and tired out. And um, re-pitches are really hard and AMV's always been good at them. But I'm wondering now if re-pitches are so much harder to win than they used to be. Yeah, I forget what the exact number is on the data of that, but, but repitches, the, the data is that the incumbent rarely wins, right? Well, it used to be 5%. You know, it's, the odds are really weighted against you. Um, but you have to yeah. repitch because it's people's jobs. But uh, we've been having the philosophical debate about should we repitch? And I know what Andrew's view of that would be. But we've been having the view fresh from thinking we'd won the repitch and the client pretty much saying to us, I can work, I think we can all work for another 15 years with you. And then the following day calling us up to say we, we wouldn't be working for another 15 years. So, And we take those losses very badly. Yeah. Um, we're very nice about them, but not with ourselves. Right. Well, on we the, never on, forget them. On the, um, on the winning side, a, a little bit more depth. I, I read an article recently where you said one of the best pieces of advice you ever got was that business is about relationships. And I think over the years I've known you and your reputation within the network is that your ability to build relationships is one of your, your great, great strengths. And so I'm wondering if you, if you have any um, suggestions, you know, um, tips or tricks for, or, the, or the way you approach it, the way you think about relationship building, how deliberate you are about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's... Versus how it's, much is natural It's very or easy, comes. and I, I love the simplicity of businesses about relationships. And I heard that very early on in my career, and I thought, well, I can do that, and I enjoy that. But I think it can't be fake. I think you've got to pay things forward. I think you've got to enjoy it. Uh, you've got to invest in it. You've got to be diligent about it. it the more we think of clients as transactions, the less they're going to invest in us. You know, that it's not about contracts and transactions which are functional and legal. It's about love and relationships and caring about each other enough to 
go through good times and bad times and there are countless examples of investment in relationships where then at the moment of truth I was doing a training program for our board account directors the other day and our most awarded creative team Nick and Nadia who've just done all the body form work and they did Guinness Seppers you, you know I know them well yeah uh, they were saying you know the best create the best account people invest in clients when they don't need to they invest in clients such that their stock is so high with that client that when they have to have a difficult conversation, when they have to push for the extra mile creatively, a client is more predisposed. And it sounds very cynical and calculating, but I love that side of the business and I think we can all do that and do it better. And with the client referral process, we can test ourselves numerically every quarter to see if we're as good as we think we are. We're just in the field at the moment, actually. We're a bit worried because we've been doing so much new business. We hope our clients go, aren't going to beat us up for that. But so yeah, that's those, a fantastic those are the tips, really. The, uh, the client referral system is a great program. Where, and as you mentioned, we're all in the field at the same time around the network. So it's just a great way to have your finger on the pulse of a moment in time, three times a year, and understand how your clients are feeling. Yeah, and I, I brought that in here years ago on the recommendation of PhD. They were using it and they said, you need to do this. And my management team at the time here were like, we don't need this, we've got all sorts of clients that we don't need it. And it's one of the few occasions where I just said, I'm sorry, we're doing it. And I'm so glad we did and it's, proved its worth and weight in gold because it's a really valuable tool and we take it really seriously. I'm just slightly dreading the next results because we're so busy. I hope we do well right. in the next round. I'll let you know. Fingers crossed. Um, what do you do um, to create a culture there? One of the things I always uh, marvel at when I'm visiting AMV or when I meet with AMV people from around the world is that they're so in love with the agency. What do you do yeah. consciously to kind of create a culture where people love to come to work? All the things you do. Um, make it a place where people can be themselves, look after their physical needs, uh, their emotional needs, their physiological needs, food, coffee, uh, places to chill, a bar, somewhere to watch the World Cup. You know, all those things are important. And when we do staff surveys, the thing they like is, you know, being able to have fruit and crisps and free breakfasts and going home early on bank holidays. Those are the things they love about working at AMV. Um, but I think we share, we communicate. One of the aspects of, you know, the whole Me Too movement is really looking at whether we can speak up strongly enough on things that aren't working well and so we've done a whole speak up program this year to make sure that when things are subtly wrong or significantly wrong people feel they can speak up so all those things I mean we've just done a campaign magazine have done a best places to work survey and we didn't come top we didn't even come in the top five we were probably in about the top 10 top 20 and when we looked at the data we could have been top but there are four departments feeling underpaid and undervalued and fed up. 
um, mainly in the production area actually. And they dragged our scores down. So we've, again, the data gives us really good ammunition to fix those issues. And we take our culture really seriously and protect it firmly, but we could be so much better. In fact, we got an 80% score for a great place to work. And our client satisfaction is usually eight out of 10. But there's a big difference between eight out of 10 and 10 out of 10. So that, those are the bits we're trying to push at the moment. Great. And um, are, there, are there any things that you're looking at that are, I don't know, are there any quick fixes to those things? Or is it, is it digging in and really understanding individual department challenges? I think it's communication. You know, we're a big agency and we have 80 clients and about 350 people in total. And there's an awful lot going on and there's an awful lot of good stuff. So communication is a way of making people feel, they've got to feel they belong and that they're part of something. And being able to share good news and bad news, something we've changed over the year is that people told us as part of our new business, lack of success, we would always trumpet the successes, but we would never be immediate and honest about losses. They were kind of brushed under a carpet and never mentioned again. So now we're much more upfront about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff to share the truth and what we're good at and admit mistakes and just be honest and open. But we're always in that state of healthy paranoia that, you know, we the minute we get too cocky about ourselves, we'll something awful will happen. So we're we're very cautious. I think when you're doing well, that's the very moment to get paranoid. So we live right. in that constant right. state. Sage words. Um, are there are there things that every agency person, especially as they're you know beginning their career or moving into the the you know early parts of their career that every agency person could do just to sort of immediately raise their game? If only they knew that if they just did this, it would raise their game. I think, well, the Barbie story I told you earlier is like, put your hand up, speak up, volunteer, um, work hard, um, don't worry about stuff. I, it took me about 50 years to stop worrying about everything. Uh, when Andrew left AMV to go to New York, he wrote me this really, the power of the handwritten letter, it, I kept it somewhere. And it, the advice he gave me was stop being a perfectionist, um, go for excellence, not perfection. And it's a very important piece of advice because, you know, you, you can try too hard sometimes and drive everybody mad. Um, and there are plenty of people I still drive mad by my excessive focus on perfection, but I'm much better than I was. And I'm certainly better than I was at worrying about everything. Um, I don't know if that's a female thing. Uh, one of my clients told me that 95% of the things we worry about never happen, which only makes me think about, mm, well, I may be in that 5% of things that will happen, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else shares that condition, but uh, I think a lot of people probably do. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably do, and I and you know one of the themes of this has uh, the, these conversations has been, um, you know, to share knowledge so that people can improve because we're all you know everyone is trying to get better, and I think one of the things you learn 
along the way to becoming a leader is that becoming a leader doesn't mean you've solved everything or that you've gotten there. It means you're probably far more open to change than you've ever been before and you're constantly yeah. trying to improve things. And I think you reach a point where thinking about others and your team is more fulfilling and exciting than thinking about yourself. And we find that with new leaders in the agency. We, we promote our stars, they arrive in a leadership position as an account director or a board account director or a department head, and then they realize, ah, it's not about me about anymore. It's about sending the elevator back down to lift the others. There's a lovely line in Wonder Woman, which is, we rise by lifting others. And I think that's what you learn. Anyone that has people reporting to them, it's not about them anymore. It's about the others. It's about making them better. And I found that very liberating because I've stopped worrying about me and my status and my personal brand and my PR and all that stuff, which I find horrific and scary. But if I think about building others, it's much more practical, satisfying, um, less selfish, less vain, less less troublesome. Um, so I think our job really is to equip the next generation to be better than us in every respect. And I found that very liberating. Mary, maybe it's when you just become a parent or something that the penny drops, but. It needs to, the penny needs to drop earlier. We're doing lots of leadership coaching with our new department heads who are struggling with that transition of, you know, it's not about me anymore, it's about the people that work for me. Right, right. It took me years to, to work that out, but I've worked it out now. <laughs> Congratulations. I think that's, uh, that is, uh, um, you're right, it's, it's one of those markers where you realize you're making a transition. And um, yeah. on that on that subject, I, you know, it's it for me having been at BBDO as long as I have, um, I've been very very fortunate that I spent about ten years reporting to David Lubars, global chief creative officer, and then I spent several years reporting to Andrew Robertson, and I I I just consider myself ec extremely lucky because I've stolen so much from each of them. And you and your yeah. career have worked with Andrew, with Michael Balk, with David Abbott. And I'm just curious if you consciously look back now and say, I took that from him, I took that from her. Are there, are there examples that yes. you might share? Yeah, and I think you learn just as much from awful people um, and difficult situations. You, um, you learn from how you the leaders that you don't want to be as well as the leaders you do want to be. Um, and I think both are equally instructive. Obviously, it's much more pleasant to learn from the likes of David Abbott and David Lubos and Andrew Robertson. But um, And you don't even need to work with them. You can read about them. You can see them in action. You can read their speeches or watch their TED Talks. And... It goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's just if you work with the right people, anything is possible. But if you work with a bunch of scumbags, you'll just be unhappy and uh, be trying to push against a tide. Yeah. So don't work yeah. with scumbags. <laughs> so the, the, yeah, so the learning there is no scumbags. Don't work for scumbags. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, well, we have about five minutes left, and I just want to pause here to see if anyone in our, yes, in our room please. has questions. Does anyone have a question for Scylla? Marissa. All right, so um, thank you for joining us. Uh, and just curious um, what your thoughts, you mentioned um, the work that you guys are doing for getting people to speak up within AMV, but how do you think the industry as a whole and uh, you know the work will continue to transform in this new Me Too movement? Yeah, great question. Um, I think Me Too provided an, an anonymous channel for people to talk about bad things that haven't been surfaced before. And we kind of looked at the anonymity of all of that and thought, you know, in a world where most people don't speak up about bad stuff, what if there's bad stuff here that people haven't spoken about, past or present? And I very much wanted to draw a line in the sand to say, from here on in, we need a culture whereby if there's something upsetting you or bothering you or something from the past you've never talked about, you should be able to speak up. And it's really hard and the HR laws are really hard. It's just like, do you want to raise a grievance? Will you testify in a court of law with this grievance? And of course no one wants to sign up to that. So I think the speak up training has been useful because it showed us what, you know, bullying and harassment and discrimination means. It taught us some different techniques for speaking up. It opened up new challenges. And then people do speak up quickly now about things that are going wrong. And we have to deal with them quickly. So I think the impact of the Me Too movement here, and I think it's probably slightly different here, um, but, you know, we're all watching Weinstein and all the other people in Adlan that have fallen. And I, I think our stance is we want to do everything possible to make it easy for people to talk about bad stuff and for us to know about it. The worst thing would be if it's happened or is happening and we didn't know about it because people didn't uh, speak up. So I think the impact of the Me Too movement is making companies think afresh about clearing out all this crappy old stuff and bad behavior and sexist behavior and harassment and prostitutes and you know all the stuff that's alive in our papers and getting people to speak about it uh, men and women you know it's not just an anti-men thing uh, there's some bullying that needs to be surfaced it, we're working in high pressure environments so We've just tried to put training in place. We've done unconscious bias training. We've done speak up tri training. We're trying to put more diversity and inclusion into our work. But we are not perfect and we're not done yet. And people make silly decisions every day in this company and behave badly in this company and regret it. And you know, I just hope and pray we're doing enough to keep the culture alive and make people feel safe and valued here. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. For new hires, how do you describe the mission of AMV? 
Well, I think we share the mission of BBDO globally that we want to produce creative and compelling content and work that works for our clients. And we're focused on the quality of our work and the quality of our people. So I don't think anything we say in terms of mission statements and so on, you know, all agencies have got mission statements. What the pitch consultants say is that Clients pick people they want to work with and that they like. And so with prospective talent and prospective clients, you know, we are who we are and we just try and present ourselves in the best possible light and talk about them. There's, we're going to issue as BBDO a really good new business toolkit about how to do new business. Um, and I think we probably need one on interviewing. Andrew's always going on about, you know, have we got a toolkit for best practice interviewing? They've, they've got some really cool stuff in Cleminger about interviewing and how to do it well. But I think we're all looking for the same things the world over, and that's people who will drive compelling creative solutions for our clients. And people who aren't dismissive of clients, you know, that... When I first started in the business and I went to the agency that I started in after university because AMV wouldn't hire me, you know, they would just laugh at clients and be rude to clients. And in the end, after two years, I just had to leave because it was just aggressive and horrible. The agency didn't didn't survive, but there was an arrogance about clients, you know, not that clients were our lifeblood. Right. Um... Scylla, um, uh, just as a, uh, I think we may, might have one minute left, but um, I wonder on the subject of the work, the work, the work, if you would share with us the work that you're most proud of. It doesn't have to be one campaign, it could be multiple things, but just the things that in your career you're most proud of as you look back. Well, it's like saying who's your favorite client. That's a trick question, and I'm not going to fool for that. But today, uh, in the last 24 hours, we won uh, the Grand Prix at the Marketing Society Awards for our work on body form. Uh, that was a very difficult piece of work to sell and an even more difficult uh, piece of work to get approved by the TV authorities. It was to normalize periods. And the theme is blood normal, and it was to take away the cliches of blue liquid period advertising and Sampro advertising and talk about periods and blood. And when we launched that film, the creative team and the account team and planning team thought that, you know, it wasn't optimal, that we hadn't been allowed to show real blood and people having sex with periods and real blood on a sanitary towel. And everybody was very dejected and cross. And I was the only cheerleader still saying, it's still fantastic, it's going to be great. And I've been proved right because it was commercial of the year and won the Grand Prix last night. So I'm really proud of that and proud of our tenacity and bravery in getting that work out. Uh, but of course, I'm proud of Guinness. I'm proud of all the work we're doing on Maltesers and Mars and Snickers. We've just shot a fantastic new Snickers ad that you'll see in the autumn, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm proud of the Economist campaign that we've run for 30 years, uh, 
but I'm not complacent. I know, you know, it's can week. I'm not going because of my son's wedding. But I want us to win our fair share of awards next week and uh, across a bigger range as possible. Which, which work are you most excited about from Sam Fram? Um, well, we, I also won't, um, won't pick just one. <laughs> uh, we just launched a campaign for Wells Fargo, which I love for, oh, yeah. the, um, for the fact that it's trying to bring back their reputation. And it was an extraordinarily yeah. difficult bit of work to get through. First, to just to solve the problem to begin with was an incredible challenge. And then to actually help the work shepherd it all the way through um, what was without a doubt the most complicated uh, approval process we've ever been through, I've ever been through in my career because of the scrutiny that the company is under. So that was, that's, that's and, the, and even more satisfying in some ways is the fact that once it hit the air, um, the numbers are immediately improving on their reputation. Oh, well so and I think you guys are really good at those mission impossible briefs. You know, is there a harder brief than Barbie? You know, you did such a clever job with that. And we all bask in your reflected glory. Um, as I say, I was showing it to a client today. It's, it's so important that you are teaching us clever new ways to tackle really difficult communication problems. We really admire everything you do. But can we have James back now? Well, thank you. I think he's going to stay here in San Francisco at least for the next um, week. Right, James? I miss it. I, do, I love the sun. I'm sorry. <laughs> he said he loves the sun. He's sorry. I know. For God's sake, there's more to life than sunshine. You know that. Uh, well, Scylla, thank you again so much for your time. And if everyone would it's just give Scylla a big round of applause. Oh, thanks so much. It's, Good uh, luck. It's, and come and visit us in London when you're all over. Um, I could have got on a plane to come and see you. That would have been nice, but no. Well, the, the, certainly the next time you're, you are here, we will do this again with you in the room, which would be a great, great pleasure and a, a treat for everyone. Vice versa. And thanks for everything, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks, Silla. Bye-bye.